Well, if you brought your Bible, if we want to use the pew Bible in front of you, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It's on page 1015 uh, in your pew Bible. This summer, we're studying one of the New Testament letters from Peter. He's, he was a disciple of Jesus. He walked with him. He learned so much from him, and we can learn from Peter. He is writing to Christian churches scattered in small cities in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. The Christians there are being rejected for their faith. More than that, society is harming them. Some have even had their property stripped away from them merely because they were Christians. Now, in spite of all the ills of society, Peter calls these Christians in verse 16 to live as servants of God. It makes no sense, really, to serve in a hostile world with mercy and love towards others, except, of course, this is what our Savior did. Jesus sojourned on this earth as a servant of God, and it changed everything for those of us who have come to believe. And because we believe, we now share this same sojourning servant calling into this hostile world. So, 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you, if you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this word to us. It's very timely that this being, this being um, 4th of July weekend, that we get to speak of what it's like to live on earth under governments. So help us to understand our calling. Jesus, we look to you who was a sojourning servant in a hostile world. Help us to embrace this calling as well in our lives. Amen. I know this is a throwback. Some of you might not even have been born when this movie came out, but it was like the uh, early 2000s. It's the movie uh, Evan Almighty. You remember that movie? Uh, News anchor Evan Baxter, who's played by Steve Carell, is elected to Congress under the slogan, Change the World. He moves his family to Virginia, just outside of D.C., and it is apparent early on that Change the World was just a slogan to get him elected. The night before his first day in Congress, his wife, his wonderful wives are good to do, suggests that he's got a big job ahead of him the next day, and he might want to, you know, pray to God for help. So he prays this feeble prayer. 
that sets his life on a different course. Soon, animals start flocking to him in pairs. <laughs> Construction material just miraculously arrives on the property next door. Then God, played by, of course, Morgan Freeman, tells him to build an ark. He was a reluctant at first, but a number of events caused Evan to believe and commit to God's plan. Now everyone, as you can imagine, including his wife and kids, ridiculed him and rejected him. But everyone was saying that they want him to give up this foolish ark project and go back to Congress. Everyone riled against him, but in the end, Evan Baxter silenced the people. The dam upriver over the town broke, and the water flooded the valley, and God and Evan and the ark saved many lives. Some of you are going to rent that movie tonight, I think. We should, do we have like a link up there where I get like a commission for these? That would be nice. Make a buck or two. It's true, isn't it? Ever since the original Noah, people who align their lives with God and his purposes have been cultural outcasts. Peter calls them sojourners and exiles on this earth. It's like we don't belong here, even though this is God's planet and one day we'll renew it. We live here ridiculed, rejected, and even killed for being faithful and obedient to God. The Christians to whom Peter wrote were suffering persecution from a hostile society. And so Peter's letter is meant to remind them of who they are as God's people. And so we've already seen um, that Peter's reminded them that God has loved them from before time even began. He's given them this new birth into a living hope and an inheritance. and, And that God's people have been made holy or set apart with a special purpose unto God. And as we saw last week, we're set apart uh, by God as holy unto him with a calling to be, remember, a merciful priesthood in a hostile world. In our text this morning, Peter is building upon this theme, and he's showing us what it looks like when the people of God take serious their calling to go into this world with mercy and grace in the word of God. My friends, Jesus entered into this world as a sojourner to serve this world that was hostile to him. Peter tells us that that is our reality, too. You know, we fall short in a number of ways. Dick Kyes wrote a book titled Chameleon Christianity, and it points out two ways that we fail as Christians. One is that we live as chameleons, and the other is that we live as muskox. Chameleon Christians desire to blend in with this world. Either they're ignorant of our calling to be salt and light in this world, or they're afraid for what might happen if they live for Christ how it might negatively impact their earthly happiness. So they blend in like chameleons. On the other end of the spectrum, there's muskox Christians. You're like, what in the world is that? Okay. Um, Muskox Christians fearfully rile at the culture around them. They hide out in enclaves. See, muskox, and when they're threatened, uh, they will form a circle around their young with their horns pointed out. Peter calls these churches to forsake both approaches and instead live like Christ, a sojourning servant in a hostile world. 
This is God's will for us, and this is what we'll look at this morning. God's will for his people is that we live as sojourning servants in a hostile world. We'll divide our time under two headings, the battlefield and the servant's field. You know, I think it's obvious uh, that this world in many ways is kind of like a battlefield. The arrows of hostility and aggression, they fly at us every day, whether we're Christians or not. I mean, just drive for 10 minutes here in the Hamptons in the summertime, which is literally like a quarter of a mile, right? (laughs) And you'll experience what I'm talking about. Everyone bowing to their own selfish interests in a hurry, flipping you the bird if you get in their way. Now, Peter has a larger battle in mind. It's a battle between the forces of evil and good. Three times in our passage, he uses the word evil. You know, many today cringe at the word evil. They think you're wrong for using the word evil. It's really kind of too harsh of a word from them. Ironically, it's evil for you to use the word evil. What Scripture shows us is God has made mankind in his image to reflect the moral beauty and creativity of our God. But back uh, when Adam turned from God, Evil, true evil entered in to creation. And so now people's hearts are turned from God and turned in on themselves. People are far from God, living for their own glory and selfish interests. Now, remember from last week, Jesus entered into this very world that has rejected God so that he may bring to this world the mercy of God. And that is now our calling. And this is the cosmic battlefield that we find ourselves in. Do you see this? Now, notice, though, an important insight that we gain from verse 1, which is the first verse, which is verse 11. Paul urges us as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of our flesh that what? Wage war against your soul. Do you see where we must begin? Not with waging war against society, but with with waging war with the sinfulness that resides in each and every one of us. Again, Peter is continuing with this theme from last week that, that we must first use the gospel to judge ourselves, not other people. Listen, the the, the major battle we fight as Christians is, is not against culture, but it's within our own souls. It's what Peter calls the flesh, passions of the flesh. Now, when the Bible speaks of the flesh, it means our old sinful nature, that fallen nature that every human being is born with, that nature that cannot help but selfishly sin and then justify ourselves for, for our actions. But the truth for the Christian is that We are now new creations. That's what Peter has shown us, that we've been born again. But the problem remains. There is a flesh, the old you, that is still in you, and we are called to battle against it. The fleshly desires, battles within us, battles against the Holy Spirit within us. If you're a Christian, you know this battle all too well, do you not? You know, if every Christian was more concerned with their own souls instead of judging others, the world we live in would better recognize our good deeds 
even though they despise us. I'm not making this up. This is what Peter is saying in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That word honor or honorable is used three times in our text. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Christian, you have a calling to keep your conduct honorable. What does honorable mean? Generally, honorable describes a person or behavior that is characterized by high moral standards, integrity, and decency. An honorable person is someone who is fair and just and truthful, often with a strong sense of duty or commitment to ethical principles. Christian Peter teaches us that we are to keep our conduct honorable, even when others dishonor us. Can you confirm this and affirm this in your own life? Now notice how Peter says the Roman culture in his time responds. He writes, so that when they speak evil, uh, speak against you as evil doers. Notice it's when, not if. So that when they speak of you, it just happens. Why do unbelievers speak of God's people as evildoers? I think a couple reasons. First, people are ignorant of who God is and who his people are. They don't don't understand the word of God because maybe they just don't have it or they haven't been taught it. A great example comes from this graffiti. There we go, up on the screen there. This is, uh, was uncovered from outside of Rome from the, about the middle second century. It displays a picture, uh, a graffiti. And up there on the cross, I don't know if you can see that, it's a donkey. And the words read, Alexamenos worships his God. They're mocking the Christians. Someone has a friend named Alexamenos, and they're making fun of him, and they drew it uh, on the wall as graffiti. Another ignorance people had back then was, listen, there was a belief back then that Christians were cannibals. Why is that? Well, they thought that during communion that Christians literally ate a person, ate a man whose name was Jesus. Many people back then spoke evil of Christians because of their ignorance. But also, people call us evil because their minds are hardened to the things of God. See, think about it. In a real and true sense, every human being, whether they believe in God or not, um, knows that there is a way life ought to be lived. There's a moral component to living life on earth. And so what happens is they'll they'll feel condemned in the presence of somebody who's living a good life. Does that make sense? C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, which we have a copy of back there on our book table, he writes of how every human being who's been born is born with a sense of morality, a sense of right or wrong. Lewis calls it an oughtness. We all know how others ought to behave. For example, say there's children in a classroom and the teacher comes in and and gives cookies to every single kid except one boy. What does the boy say? That's not fair. I ought to get a cookie too. There's an oughtness to life. 
See, when other people see that you're living how you ought to live, there can be a sense of guilt, and then they can speak evil against you. This is just how it is. But no matter if it's ignorance or hostility of mind, our living honorably in this world causes people to speak evil of us. It's not if, it's when they speak evil of you. And I think that's why some people kind of want to live as a chameleon Christian. They don't want to be spoken evil against. Now look at this too. Peter also gives us, I hope you realize, there's, there's great hope in this passage. He speaks of living honorably and how that has a life-changing effect upon people. If only just a few people, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now what's the day of visitation? That's the day when Christ returns. Uh, everyone who's in their graves will rise to greet him and all who are still alive will rise to greet him. And on that day, God will judge everyone. What Peter is showing us is that on that day, there will be a people who used to speak evil against Christ and against Christians. But because of how we have lived among them as sojourning servants, they, they come to believe themselves and they glorify God on the day of visitation. This is what Peter wants us to have in our minds, right? Not the hostility that we're going to experience, but how as we live with honorably in our culture, there will be people who are hostile towards us who come to believe. Can you embrace that? Can you see that as a calling in your life? Christian, this is the battlefield, so to speak, a world that is hostile to God and his people. But the first battle is within. We must battle against our own sin that wages war against our soul. How does this challenge you so far? If you tend towards being a chameleon, then this tells you that living with the same sinful passions of this world and just trying to blend in, it's contrary to who God is calling you to be in Christ. He calls you to live in holiness, even if others speak evil against you. And if you tend towards being a musk ox, I know it's not a pretty picture, um, this tells us that instead of living with self-righteous indignation, pink finger pointing against culture and all the hostility of the world, you are to live among the Gentiles, so to speak, with the desire of serving them for Christ's sake. This means you need to stop hiding out in fear and anger and start loving those who think we are the evildoers. That's the battlefield, not for the servant's field. You know, verse 16 ends with the words, but living as servants of God. What does it look like to live as a servant of God? In verse 13, Peter begins a long section, which we'll go into next week as well. Peter tells us that as servants of God, we are to subject ourselves, listen, to the God-ordained institutions on earth. Today, of course, we see it's, we're to subject ourselves to the human institution of civil government. And next week, we will see uh, husbands and wives and workplaces. For now, Peter instructs these churches to be subject to the human institution of government. Now, the temptation as Christians can be to say, you know what, I answer to the highest power. You know, you know my king sits on the throne in heaven, you know. I owe no earthly allegiance to any earthly government. But Peter makes clear just the opposite. Verse 13, be subject to every human institution. 
How's this challenge you so far? Please think this through. This was quite a statement in Peter's day, okay? At the time Peter wrote this, listen, he was living in Rome, and who was the emperor then? Nero. And Nero was neurotic. Perfect name for him. Peter was a first-hand witness of Nero's growing hostility. In 64 AD, much of Rome burned. And according to the historian Tacitus, the population searched for a culprit, which led to the rumors that Nero was responsible. To diffuse the blame, Nero targeted Christians. He ordered Christians to be thrown to the dogs while others were crucified and some burned at nighttime for all to see. Here's what the historian Tacitus, who was nine at the time of the fire, here's how he describes the event. Listen, it's kind of a long quote. But see how, see how he makes the Christians look so evil, right? Here we go. Consequently, to get rid of the report that Neo, Nero burned everything, Nero fastened the guilt and affliction of the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude of Christians was convicted. Not so much of the crime of burning the city as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished or or were nailed to crosses or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. Let this sink in. This is the same Roman government that Peter says to submit to. Is he mad? Or is perhaps something counterintuitive at play here? Well, he's not mad. Then what is he saying? He's saying that civil civil government is an institution that is ordained by God. God has a purpose for it. The means that God wants government to exist to serve, um, the means that that God uses these governments is so that they can reign in evil and promote praise for peace. God has a purpose then for emperors, kings and governors, parliaments and presidents. When at least minimally functioning as intended, governments allow for the flourishing of society. Verse 14 speaks of one thing they do. They punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. This tells us two things. One, that there's a moral right and wrong. And two, that God intends that government promote right and punish wrong. Now, of course, this is never done perfectly, right? 
And that's probably what's going through your head, but most governments fail miserably. You know, this weekend we're celebrating the 247th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Though founded on Christian principles, our nation is not without failures, things which we need to repent of. But overall, the institution called the U.S. government has pursued this role that God has given it to maintain order so that people may pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, Peter is saying that God's design for government is that people are able to live freely because of government, and therefore the gospel is able to be spread. But what about the question of Christians actually serving in government? It's become quite the deal lately. Even back in the 2008 presidential primary election, the New York Times endorsed Hillary Clinton and John McCain. I don't know if you guys remember that. And part of the reasoning that they, they said was that anyone who is religious, listen, anyone who is religious is automatically disqualified for running for office. But if that's true, Abraham Lincoln couldn't have been president. Martin Luther King Jr. never been allowed to run for office. There's a push today from our culture that says separation of church and state. They say that this means that Christians cannot bring their Christian values and their ideas to bear in the state. But this is nonsense, right? Think of it. The separation of church and state isn't about Christians not serving in government. It only has to do with government not establishing one form of church above all others and declaring this is the official state church. That was the problem in England, if you recall. That's why it's there in our Constitution. And think about this, right? Think about it. If it were true that only people, um, that if, if people who believe in God cannot serve in government, then that means only the atheists can serve, right? And you know, it's not like atheists leave their beliefs and values at home when they go and serve. It's not like they don't, when they're writing legislation, they say, I'm going to take my atheist views, set them aside. <clears throat> so we must realize that Christians are allowed to bring their values and beliefs to bear when voting and serving in government. Back to Peter, though. Peter says, whether it's Nero or one of his local governors, subject yourself to them. Why? For whose sake? For Nero's sake? No. Verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Listen, when you submit to Nero's rule, you aren't doing it for Nero's sake, but for God's sake. You are serving God when you submit to the institutions that God has ordained. Does this make sense? Peter says in verse 16, live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christian Christ has set you free. He's brought you into his kingdom. But don't use this freedom that Christ has given you and this grace of God that you now stand in as an excuse to live as a chameleon on this earth. No, use your freedom to live as a servant of God. Martin Luther famously sums this up when he wrote, listen, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none, 
a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all, both simultaneous. But we miss Peter's point, if all we see is submit to human authorities. See, the thrust of this passage is positive, not negative. This section has a noble optimism that under normal circumstances, loyalty to God and loyalty to the empire will not result in conflict, but rather in praise for our actions. The point is, serve God by submitting to the government. Live such good lives that even though they think you're ignorant and naive or believing in God, your life will have such a transforming effect upon culture that their ignorance will be silenced and God will receive glory that he deserved. Do you believe this? That's what Peter's telling us. So promote the civic good and just watch as the gospel spreads. And what is the expected result? Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish. You know, try to picture this in your head. You know, you living as a sojourning servant in this world is going to cause you to be an enigma. And so you and I need to embrace being enigmatic. See, God will use your faithfulness to move people from ignorance to salvation. And so for now, guess what? You're different than this world. You believe that there is a God and he's supreme and he reigns over all creation. You believe that God has a moral standard of right and wrong that's good to follow. You believe that God will judge people for how they live their lives in the body. You believe that Jesus Christ literally was raised from the dead. You believe that Jesus is the only path to God. And you believe that, that God is deserving of our moral obedience. These are things that the world scratches their head about. Throughout the ages, Christians have been scorned and ridiculed for believing these truths. This world calls good evil and evil good. So it's no surprise that Christians are continually rejected for who we are and what we believe. And yet it's true, so many Christians in America, they act surprised at how the beliefs we hold so dear are considered hate speech. Tacitus said that the beliefs back in his day um, were considered hate speech, the beliefs of these Christians. And Christians today get hung up unable to move. But Peter wants us to know this is how it always is. You will be rejected. You will be scorned. You'll be ridiculed. Now, think about this. We're almost done. Peter provides a perfect example of this, right? Remember when Jesus was in the garden with his disciples and Judas brought the Roman soldiers to arrest, to arrest Jesus. Remember that? Remember how Peter responded? How dare you, right? And he picked up a sword. And he tried to kill the soldiers, but all he could do is he just lopped off one, one soldier's ear, to which Jesus reached out with compassion and he healed the man. There stood Jesus, the one who cared about the outcasts of society, prostitutes, tax collectors and the like, the one who himself conducted his life honorably, and yet the religious leaders spoke against him as an evildoer. 
Remember how Jesus did not stand up to Pontius Pilate. He didn't stand up and say, you have no authority over me. No, Jesus lived in perfect subjection to human institution, even the cruel Roman Empire. And so they crucified Jesus. They thought they were doing away with the great evil. But it was Jesus who was doing away with the greater evil, our sin. He lived and died and rose from the grave as a sojourning servant of God who came into this world, this hostile world. And can you see, Peter witnessed all that. He was there. He witnessed all of it, including his own failure. And now the apostle Peter calls us to live as our Savior lived. We're to live as servants in a hostile world. That's God's purpose for us. It's his purpose for you. God is in control, and because he's in control, we're able to live out verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In Evan Almighty, God challenges Evan to live for his mission by building an ark. Evan spends a few minutes counting the cost, and he tells God he has other important things to do, like to live in his house and work as a congressman. But God, uh, Morgan Freeman, uh, called to him to live counterculturally as a sojourning servant. And I think we can apply this to ourselves. He says to Evan, so how about it? Do you feel like living on the edge? You want to change the world, son? So do I. Let's pray. Father, we, we sit here as people convicted of our lethargy. We, we think it's right to rile at this culture, to, to point fingers. And I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't pursue holiness and goodness as a society, but Jesus, you entered into this world hostile towards you, calling you the evildoer. And you suffered the greatest of all so that we might share in the same mission. So I pray for each of us here. May you challenge us where we need to be challenged, whether we're muskox or or, or we're, we're trying to blend in as chameleons into our culture. Help us to see who we're really called to be. Help us to love this world. The people who, who call us evildoers and hate speech speakers, may we care for them. May we love them. May you be honored by this. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.